just, I love it. I love everything about the music. I love the depth, the theology that's tied into so many of these Christmas songs that we sing. Um, it's a shame we don't do a ton of them more during the year. You know, we don't explore these things. We don't really use a Christmas story in Scripture outside of Christmas, which is uh, relatively sad. So um, I'm actually really motivated this time of year as a way of thinking about how we step into 2014 and, and what that really looks like for us as a church and how the incarnation, the very presence of, of, of God in the person of Jesus Christ changes everything for us. And I've been talking about Christmas over the past few weeks really in terms of what it means, right? And so I kind of threw some things out there the past few weeks saying, you know, culturally, while this is a wonderful time, <clears throat> there are certain markers that are out there for us. Christmas is about presents and it's about giving and trees and traditions and cups and Starbucks cups and things like that. And I talked about commercials and figgy pudding and Yule logs, whatever those are, and, and how it's all sort of about that stuff. We kind of said it tongue in cheek and we talked about the consumerism that sort of drives Christmas as well. The fact that we'll give $470 billion this year as Americans to Christmas, right? $470 billion with a B. That we'll spend all kinds of money on things and on decorations and on resources and toys for our kids and all that kind of stuff. And then we had Haley Stewart stand up here last week and talk, about, talk to us about the world's water crisis. Talk to us about how kids all over the developing world and families all over the developing world are dying because of lack of access to clean water. Did you know that you can solve the world's water crisis all over the world for $10 billion? Yet we'll spend $470 billion this year alone on Christmas. Eight to ten billion of that will be on decorations. Sometimes I think that while we understand that there's a bigger picture with Christmas, most of us don't really know, really, number one, what it means and how we live into that. And so for the past three weeks, I've kind of been exploring this idea of what Christmas is about. And the first week we talked about Christmas being about the incarnation. The word incarnation is really an important theological term, which means the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So that the incarnation was not only God with us, but God breaking into humanity, into sinful humanity with his perfect, sinless self. And not just about the infant birth, but about the process of redemption that would come about through the cross and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. That God broke into this world so that we might know him. So, so often we think Christmas is about that single event that happened in the manger some 2,000 years ago. The shepherds gathered and everybody held hands and that baby cried and we remember that story. That sounds like fun, whatever's going on down there. <laughs> part of me wants to go be a part of that. So we think it's about that story, but really it's about the presence of Christ. I mean, ultimately Christ was born to die. The entire purpose of the manger, of the wise men, of these, can of these, these kind of trek through the countryside on camels following the North Star, is so that Christ, the embodiment of God, would die on a cross so that we might have new life. And then last week we talked about Christmas being about worship and we explored this idea of how worship began. Really, the worship of Christ began 2,000 years ago and how the angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds, these sort of throwaways, and declared the coming of the king, right? And how that's such an incredible picture of what God does with us. And we talked about worship and how I longed for our lives to be about this sort of deep, passionate worship that sort of wells up in everything that we are and drives us to tell the world. So we, we talked about Christmas being about the incarnation, about presence is what we called it. Christmas is about presence, not E-N-T-S, but E-N-C-E, presence. And then Christmas was about worship, was last week. Well, this week we're going to talk about the third thing before we kind of do our, 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 script, our, our Christmas service uh, next week. And that's this, that Christmas is about giving. 
Now, I know some of you here are probably going, great, this is it. This is the one I've been waiting for, right? End of the year, church is looking for some little extra money. I mean, so he's going to hit us up. We're going to feel a little guilty. We're going to talk about poor kids and how they're struggling and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to feel bad because I got my kid that $50 Lego set. Now I feel like I need to give something. The church is talking about giving and all that kind of stuff. But if you know me at all, if you come ever, ever to church with us, you realize pretty quickly that this idea of giving to alleviate my guilt, right, or to make myself feel a little bit better around the holidays is really not a biblical picture of giving at all and probably one of the most worthless messages I could preach. Scripture actually paints a very different picture of giving, and it does not begin with your resources. It actually begins with your heart and with your life. And I deeply believe that Christmas really begins here. What would happen if we truly said, Lord, I give myself over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then as a response to that life-altering proclamation, I'm going to give my life away and follow you. What if giving in our mindset wasn't about giving my stuff, but instead was about saying yes to Jesus and yes, I will follow you. And that's what we're going to explore this morning because that's what I believe Christmas really is about. Surrendering our hearts and lives to the Lordship of Christ and then ultimately saying, Jesus, I give my life away to follow you. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 9. Um, if you've got one in front of you, still Luke chapter 9. So just uh, grab it, open it up. We're going to be exploring this idea of Christmas from that standpoint. Not really a Christmas story this morning, um, but nonetheless what Christmas, I believe, is truly about. So if you've got that Bible, open up to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start off in verse 18. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up there, and then we'll take a few seconds and pray together. God, I thank you for the opportunity, God, this morning. I thank you for the testimony that comes from our children. I don't say that lightly, uh, Lord. We have prayed over the past several years, long and hard, that you would give us a heartbeat to to love the kids that you've put in this community well. And, uh, Lord, we know that Stephanie and Emily and some some folks that volunteer really answers to those prayers. And watching these kids stand up here and proclaim truth is well, it's pretty amazing. Lord, it's been quite a journey, this little church that we've planted and are part of, and watching our kids get up and, and be a part of this work, expression of worship is, is really moving to me. So, Lord, we're grateful. Lord, we know and recognize that, that, uh, that this time of the year is, is complicated and clogged up with all kinds of things, with, with buying and presents and sometimes great family, sometimes not so great family, sometimes busyness, sometimes uh, working harder, deadlines, school finals, all those kind of things. So just for the next few minutes, let us just pause and sit. Just sit in your presence and just reflect on all that you've done and all that you promised to do. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to remove everything but him this morning. All the noise, all the voices, all the distraction, all the stuff that has to happen at 1230 today or whatever. And just remove it all for the next few moments and just ask to see him. Pray for someone beside you as we do each week. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Uh, Even if you don't know their name, just pray for them. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We ask that you be glorified in everything that we say and do. Teach our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 9. I'll give you some filling in just a second, but let's read it together. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? 
And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago that's come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Then he said to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Not exactly a Christmas passage, right? Not exactly a, a passage that reminds us of uh, sort of this wonderful time of the year with snowflakes and all that kind of stuff. It's, but it's nonetheless, I think, one of the most important passages in all of Scripture because I believe it asks one of the most important questions that you will ever be asked. So Jesus has gathered his disciples, and the crowds around are obviously beginning to talk about him. They've heard the things that he'd done. They've seen that he has fed 5,000, that he has cast out demons, that he's done miraculous, amazing things. The crowds have heard that he's taught with authority, that he's healed people, that he's given the blind sight that the deaf are able to hear. And one day, while he's out praying by himself in private, he turns to his disciples. Without all those crowds around, he says, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? So the disciples, they begin to say what they can think of. Well, you know, here's what we've heard. We've heard that some people actually think you're John the Baptist, right? He's kind of a crazy guy out in the wilderness and dressed in, you know, bear skins or whatever and eating, eating locusts. And some people think that's you, right? They say, well, I've actually heard that somebody thinks you're Elijah, that you've come back, right? That you're, or that you're a prophet from long ago. They sort of shout out all the things they've heard of. Jesus hears those things and he looks at those disciples gathered there and he said, no, no. Now, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter very quickly replies, well, you're the Christ of God. Matthew records it as him saying, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he warns them not to tell anybody. And then he tells them some things that are going to happen about how he's going to be handed over at the hands of the chief priests and the elders. And that ultimately he's going to be killed. And then he looks at them and he says, but listen, I've got something to tell you. You know, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, right? Follow me. If anyone wants to save his life, you'll have to lose it. What good is it for man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? And he sort of gives them these instructions. Now, here's the thing. I think the question wrapped up in there is one of the most important questions that we will ever deal with as people. And that's the question of, who is Jesus Christ? Now, don't make any, any mistakes about this. This was not an easy question and an easy answer. When Jesus looked at the disciples and he says, who do you say I am? He's actually asking an incredibly important question. And I can't under, understate how important this question was. Because Peter's response is really, really powerful. Because he wasn't just sort of saying tongue-in-cheek, oh, oh, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the Messiah, you are the Son of God, you are Lord. He's not just saying that. Because by saying those things, he was ultimately signing his own death certificate. Because by acknowledging that this person, this Jesus, was God's son, was the Messiah, he was basically, basically becoming a blasphemer, which was punishable by death. Ultimately, Peter would live into that. But it wasn't something he said tongue-in-cheek. It wasn't, oh, oh sure, you know, Jesus, you're, you're the Lord. You're Messiah. It was an incredibly important proclamation and one that would ultimately cost Peter his life. 
But what Peter was saying is that you are the one that has been talked about in Scripture. You are the one that is of God. You are the Christ, the Messiah. And Matthew records him saying, you are the son of the living God. Now, this is an incredibly powerful statement. And it's one that I don't take lightly. Because I think that you and I are actually asked the same question. Who is Jesus to you? I mean, really, who is Jesus? Is he a great moral teacher, right? Is he sort of a figure of your religious experience or some kind of significant religious thing or, or someone that you pay attention to for about four weeks a year or maybe if Easter, throw that in there, maybe five weeks a year? Who is your proclamation of who Christ is? Because if like Peter, and, and I won't, I'll venture to say this, I think that the majority of us in this room, and I won't kind of take too much for granted, but I think the majority of us in this room are very much okay with Peter's comment. We're very much okay saying Jesus is Lord. The question really becomes, at what point in time does our life and our heart begin to live into that statement? Because very easily we can proclaim Jesus as Lord and has zero effect on our life. But what Peter proclaimed on the side of that hill that day would change his life forever. It would change the very trajectory of how he lived. He would go through ups and downs. He would ultimately deny Jesus. He would end up dying for that very statement. Because essentially what Peter was saying is that you, Jesus, are Lord. I believe the first thing that we're called to give is to give ourselves completely to the Lordship of Christ. Before we do anything, before we give a single thing, we have to deal with the question that Peter gets asked, which is, who do you say I am? And Jesus basically says it to you. And if we're okay with the idea that Jesus is Lord, then we've got to deal with the idea of, is Jesus my Lord? We've got to deal with the question of the Lordship of Christ. And when I use the term Lordship, I'm using a theological term that basically makes reference to Jesus being Lord of all, of heaven and of earth, creator of the universe, as Paul says in Philippians, that he is over all, in all, and through all. That we have to deal with the reality of that statement. By saying Jesus is Lord, what I'm saying is that you are Lord of my life. You tell me how I should live, how I should think, how I react. My whole life is for you and to serve you. But most of us don't want to live here. Because it means surrendering control of my life and my ideas completely over to God. So we're okay with saying that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, but very seldom are we really willing to surrender our hearts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to give ourselves over and say, God, you get all of me, every single little piece. Surrendering to the Lordship of Christ means that you are not only Lord, but you are Lord of my life, of my life. And this is essentially what Peter's proclaiming. And this proclamation would change everything. So Jesus hears Peter proclaiming this, that you are Lord, that you are Messiah, that you are the very Son of God. And he quickly follows it up with some instructions about how not to talk about it. And then he basically says something that I think is incredibly profound. All the things Jesus said, right, were profound. But this one is good. They're all good. <laughs> some, of them, yeah, some of them aren't fun, but they're all good. So verse 23, then he said to them, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
You know what's remarkable about this statement is that basically Jesus is saying this in response to Peter. So Peter goes, hey, you are Lord, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, if you really believe what you just said, then it's going to have to affect how you live. If you really believe that I am Lord, that I am Messiah, that I am the Christ of God, right? If I am the one, then it's going to change the way that you live forever. And he said, Peter, if you really believe that, then you've got to be willing to give your life away. If you're willing to give yourself to the Lordship of Christ, you've got to be willing to give your life away and follow him, which means at some point in time, your proclamation as Jesus as Lord has got to impact how you live. That's basically what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Peter, you can say all you want that I am Messiah and that I am Lord and that I am the Son of God, but at some point in time, you have to begin to live in a way that follows me. This is where the intersection of the Christian life gets really messy. Because most of us will show up at church on Sunday and proclaim from the top of our lungs, Jesus is Lord, we will sing the songs and we will love them, but we will walk out of these doors and our lives are impacted almost in no way. So here's the thing. Jesus gives some very specific instructions. He says, if you're willing to give yourself to the Lordship of Christ, willing to call me your Lord, then it's going to affect how you live. You've got to be willing to give your life away. And listen to what he says to Peter. He says, listen, if you're really going to say these words out loud, this is going to be how you live. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's several things in there I want you to see. The first is that Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. This is what I hate the most about the Christian life. I love me. Like, I love things that make me feel good. I love putting myself here and making sure that I'm comfortable. Yet Jesus calls me to deny every impulse that I have. And we all have the impulses to elevate ourselves, Even when we think we're in our most humble, we all have the desire to serve ourselves first, right? Some of it's just more visible than others. But Jesus says, look, if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself, ultimately surrendering control of your life to me. It's what John's, John, the Baptist, or John the Baptist says when he says in verse 3 of the book of John, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, look, to deny yourself means it's not about what I want, what I can have or what I get. It's not about my stuff or my resources or my respect or my dignity. It's not about any of those things. Instead, Jesus, it's about you. I will deny the very things that I think will fulfill me so that you can be glorified. This is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. If you're going to proclaim that I am Lord, if you're going to stand and say it out loud, then be willing to surrender your life in a way that follows me. You have to deny yourself. Literally, you have to look at yourself and say, it's not about what I want. Right? A lot of us are pretty good at doing this in relationships at times. We're just not really good at doing it in relationship with God. You've got to deny yourself first. It will be the most difficult challenge you face in all of your Christian life, I promise. The wrestle that you have with the self. Self-gratification, self-pleasure, self-seeking, whatever it is, you put it there. It's the number one struggle we all have because we wrestle with God for control, and control is an illusion, doesn't even exist, but we still think we want it. So we fight God for it. Basically saying, God, I'm not going to deny me, but I'm going to fight you every step of the way to make sure that I feel comfortable with my life and the control of my life. Control is an illusion. We don't even have it. Nobody knows what's going to happen when we walk out of these doors. God is ultimately in control of all things, so why do we fight with him over it? 
Denying ourselves means surrendering to that truth. So he says, listen, if you're going to come after him, deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily. I think one great disservice we've done in our, our culture is, is we've turned that idea of taking up our cross as being a sort of metaphorical or figurative um, sort of burden that we must carry. You've probably all heard somebody say, hey, I've got this thing I'm dealing with. It's just my cross to carry. You've probably heard that, that phrase a little bit. Basically what that means is that it's just some kind of burden I've got to deal with. This is not what Jesus was talking about at all. No one in that period of time would have saw the cross as a metaphorical burden for a problem or illness in life. The cross had one singular purpose. It was created by man as the most horrific and brutal instrument of torture and death imaginable. To carry your cross, which is what the Romans made the criminals do, meant I am carrying the very tool that I will die upon. And when Jesus looks at Peter and his disciples and he says, that you might, when you're going to come after me, you must be willing to take up your cross. He's not saying, hey, life is going to be hard, carry your burdens. He's actually saying something much more extreme, which is if you're going to follow me, you have to be all in. You have to be willing at some point in time to say, Jesus, I will die for what I believe about you. Every single one of the disciples, sadly, Judas in a different way, would lose their life for the sake of Christ. To take up your cross daily means that every day I wake up and I say, Jesus, my life is yours. I surrender control of it and I will follow you even if that leads me to the places that I don't want to go. It's denial of self. It's total self-surrender. And I know it's not Christmas cuddly and all those kind of things. We think about Jesus and angel, but it's not, doesn't mean it's any less true. To deny yourself and take up your cross means, Jesus, you get all of me and I will walk wherever that means, even even to the place I don't want to go. Take up your cross daily, and then the last part he says in that little sentence is, and follow me. You know, one of the, the things that we love about the Christian life is that idea of following Jesus. I mean, go, go to Mardell's. You'll find like 15 books really recently that are written about what it means to follow Jesus. And on paper, it looks really great, and we love to read it, and it sells a lot of books. But the truth is, nobody really wants to engage in it in the way that the Bible really talks about it. 1 John 2.6 says that if we claim to live in him, meaning Jesus, we must walk as he did. You know what that means? It means we have to live and follow Je- the way that Jesus lived and walked. Nobody wants to do that because it means doing the very things that most of us don't want to engage in. Spending time with the people that we don't want to spend time with. Engaging in relationships. Speaking truth. Living completely different than culture. That if we're going to claim to fo- live in him, we must walk as he did. Following Jesus is not a metaphor on how we just sort of need to do things like Jesus would do them. It literally means that our feet need to be where his feet were. We spend time with the people that he spent time with. We talk to people the way he did. We interacted with the world the way that he interacted with it. And we lived in such a manner that brought glory alone to God and not to ourselves. Following Jesus is not a metaphor for mission. As many books would have you believe. It's not that at all. Following Jesus is a metaphor for surrendering your life to him that says you get all of me and I will go where you went and I'll put my feet where you put them and I will think about my resources in my life the way you did and I will honor God the way that you honored the Father. I will live in a way that attempts to be like you. See, we want to handpick the things 
that make us feel good. Oh, Jesus spent time with the poor. So, so on Christmas and around that time, I'm going to spend some time with the poor. I'm going to give a little bit extra money away. And I'll take a little bit of the guilt away or I'll feel a little bit of better about my Christmas interactions. And we call that following Jesus. The reality is just making myself feel a little better because I won't completely surrender my life to Christ. No amount of doing that will ever take away the call to give your life to Christ. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do things like that over Christmas. I'm just saying that shouldn't be the motivation why we do things like that over Christmas. Following Jesus is a daily, daily decision. Not four weeks of a year. Not making sure we give at the end of the year so we feel a little bit better about what's unfolding. But it is a daily surrender. Peter, if you're going to claim these things, if you're going to actually give yourself to the Lordship of Christ, say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, then it means that you've got to be willing to do these things, to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And then he finishes with this statement, or it kind of ends that little section with this statement. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? Basically, he's saying something so radically countercultural that it's one of those things that we just sort of love, but we don't know how to live. Jesus is essentially saying, look, you can have the world. You can have respect, and you can, have, you can accrue wealth, and you can, you can do things. And you, by all standards of this world, you can really live a life that looks great, right? And lose it. Not the stuff, but your life. Everything on this planet can point to the fact that you are a great human, that you are a lover of people, that you are successful in your endeavors, that you love your wife and love your kids or love your husband and love your family and all those kind of things, you can have all of that and still lose your life. What Jesus is saying is, is so powerfully countercultural. He says, however, if you really want to save your life, the abundant life that John 10.10 10 talks about and the eternal life in heaven, then you've got to be willing to lose it here. And you know what losing it means? It doesn't mean gathering up all your things and giving away. Right? Losing your life means denial of yourself to the Lordship of Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's the same thing he just echoed. If you want to lose your life, give it over to Christ. Quit hanging on to it with all that you are in hopes of somehow you have something that resembles control. Jesus echoes the same things he's been saying. That's all that passage means. It doesn't mean gather up all your stuff and move somewhere distant so that you feel really good about the fact that you're really following Jesus. It just says, listen, die to yourself. Sometimes that's what that means, sometimes it's not. But most of all, it just means, Jesus, you get me, all of me. Every corner of my heart and every recess of my mind belongs to you. I'll give myself over to follow you. I deeply believe that Christmas is about giving. But first and foremost, and always, it's about giving your life completely to the Lordship of Christ and then giving your life away in a, way says that, in a way that says, I follow you. Now, my thoughts on Christmas giving are this. What if our giving, whether it be to our family or just to the world around us, was ultimately just a response to that giving? Not just the fact that Jesus gave his life, but that he calls us to give in this way. How would that change things? How would I change by giving my resources and my time and my life? What would that look like? What if this year, instead of giving extra to people for Christmas so that I felt really good, I actually gave all of me to Christ? And said, God, I want to give you all first. And then all of my giving from that point in time 
becomes a reflection that nothing belongs to me and everything belongs to you. Last week we stood up here and, and Haley talked to us about the opportunity to connect with Water 4. We actually ran out of all those brochures. She's going to bring some next week. But as a simple way of saying, what if I gave less to the people around me that have all the things? And we decided that we're going to invest in people that had nothing and help a developing world find a solution for a, sustain, for a sustainable solution for a, a pandemic. A pandemic, a lack of clean water. It's killing thousands of children every day. What if our giving to that now was, it was not because we felt bad about kids that were without access to clean water, but what if our giving was a response to the fact that my whole life belongs to Jesus and Jesus loved the marginalized. He spent time with the oppressed. He fought for those that couldn't fight for themselves. And so instead of giving because I feel bad, I give because I want to live like Jesus did. This is who Jesus spent his time with and who he loved. The people on the fringes of society that everybody else just closed their eyes and looked away from. And Jesus didn't give to them and love them because he felt sorry for them. He genuinely loved them. So don't give to Water 4 and engage in these sort of movements of giving of Christmas because you feel bad. Get involved because you want to have your life look like the life of Christ and love the marginalized. Instead of giving a cup of coffee to that homeless person, learn their name. Instead of telling everybody about how great Christmas is, invite someone to meet the God that's changed you. Give your life so as we walk out of here today, I'm closing worship. These are the two things I want you to think through. How do I answer that question that Peter and the disciples were asking? Who do you say that I am? And how does that change how I live? Let's pray.